Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. In August of 1805, uh, the Corps of Discovery, otherwise known as the Lewis and Clark Expedition, finally arrived at the headwaters of the Missouri. It was the culmination of 15 months of hard travel. They had been looking for the headwaters, the, the principal spring from which the Missouri River sprung, and they had finally found those headwaters. It was, they believed, the culmination of their expedition because they were looking for a northwest passage. Uh, those of you who attended our State of the Church address in January may be familiar with this story. You already know that President Jefferson had given uh, Lewis and Clark the uh, the order, the, the mission to discover the Northwest Passions, a waterway connecting the Pacific Ocean to the, to the Mississippi River through the Missouri, the mighty Missouri, which would then flow into the Mississippi. For hundreds of years, all the European powers believed, they were certain, they knew without any doubt that there was a Northwest Passage. There would be some way to connect the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi through the Missouri, and Lewis and Clark were sent to explore the lands just recently acquired by the United States, uh, the Louisiana Purchase, to explore those lands and discover at long last that Northwest Passage. As they took a drink from the cool spring, the fountainhead, the headwaters of the Missouri, they were confident that when they uh, ascended a, a, a small rise near the headwaters of the Missouri, they would look down. Once they had ascended that that small rise near the spring, they would look down. Uh, on a gently descending slope that would lead them eventually to the Pacific Ocean. They also believed that they would see not too far off in the distance the Columbia River. The future was bright. The future was certain. America would triumph because it would be possible to to connect the Pacific to the Mississippi through the Missouri, and surely there would be just a small portage, just a small distance for them to carry their canoes and then drop them into the Columbia River and then begin their slow, triumphant downhill run to the Pacific Ocean. As you probably know, even if you weren't with us for the State of the Union, uh, the State of the Church address, when uh, Lewis and Clark ascended that small slope and gazed down, they didn't actually gaze down at all because they didn't see the Columbia River anywhere near them, and they didn't see a gently descending slope that would take them uh, effortlessly to the Pacific Ocean. Instead, what they saw were the Rocky Mountains. Instead, what they discovered, much to their surprise, was that uh, the world before them was nothing like the world behind them, and the canoes would not get them where they wanted to go. For disciples of Jesus, for the disciples of Jesus, the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more it felt like the culmination of their journey, the more they began to feel, as Lewis and Clark and their, and their uh, companions did, like things were finally kind of reaching their pinnacle, like they were at the, at the, uh, at the climax of their journey. Because they believed that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, the king would take his throne and the kingdom of God would come. 
Lewis and Clark had to really struggle with the fact that uh, their mental map of the world was not accurate. Their assumptions about the world did not fit reality. And when Jesus went to Jerusalem and was ultimately crucified on the cross, the disciples were shocked to discover that the future was not at all as they had imagined. But as they journeyed with Jesus, walked with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more they began to feel like, think that they were reaching the culmination of their journey. They had a vision of the future, and that future was bright, and it was called the kingdom of God. Most first century Jews shared that vision, a compelling picture of the future, and it was called the kingdom of God. And it was drawn in part from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is given a vision. We are given a vision of God's future coming of the kingdom. It's a powerful vision, and in that vision, human kingdoms are depicted as a series of beasts arising out of the sea, one after another arising out of the sea. They arise out of the sea because in the biblical imagination, the sea represents chaos. And these human kingdoms in the ancient world just brought chaos and death to the world that they dominated. One after one, rising up out of the sea, representing chaos. First it was the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then Alexander and the Greeks, and after him, his successors. They all presented themselves as superhuman, as the sons of God, the representatives of God, the image of God on earth, but they were not superhuman. They were actually subhuman. That's why they're depicted in the visions as beasts, terrifying, rising up out of the sea, one after another. But in the vision in Daniel chapter 7, we read and we see that after these beasts come one after another out of the sea, there will come a day when one like a son of man, one like a son of humanity, one like a true human will come before God. And to him will be given power and authority and a kingdom and a dominion that will never, ever end. In other words, one day, someday, God's kingdom will come. God's rule will come. And it will supplant all of these beastly kingdoms that set themselves up as a bringer of blessing, but they're really just beastly. They're not superhuman, they're subhuman. And this true human, this one like a son of man, will come and will reign. And in and through him, somehow God himself will begin to reign. As I mentioned, this is a shared vision, a shared hope, a shared prayer among first century Jews. There's a prayer from that time which echoes in many ways, or rather which Jesus himself echoed in the Lord's Prayer. This first century Jewish prayer is called the Kaddish. This was prayed daily by uh, Jesus and other Jews. May the great name of God be exalted and sanctified throughout the world which he has created. According to his will, may his kingship be established in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the entire household of Israel swiftly and in the near future and say, amen. Doesn't that sound like the first half of the Lord's Prayer? Because it is. They prayed for the coming of the kingdom of God. 
They were not praying that their souls would depart from the earth and go to heaven. They prayed that heaven would come here, that God would come. Through that one, like a son of man, through that truly human one, God would come and begin to reign and set right the wrongs and heal all the hurts and make the world good again. That was the hope. That was the prayer. That was the promise of God, which they prayed every day. And with each step closer to Jerusalem, the disciples of Jesus believe in their heart of hearts that that prayer is about to be answered through Jesus. First century Jews, as I said, shared that same hope, shared that same prayer, but they were deeply divided over how the kingdom would come. Much like our world, they were divided up into camps that were both religious and political. And each of those camps, each of those parties had their own beliefs, their own creed about how the kingdom would come. For the zealots, some of whom were referred to as the Sicarii, the dagger men, they believed that the kingdom would come through war. Their creed, their code was pretty simple. Death to the Romans. Kill the Romans. If we truly believe in God, if we believe that there is no king but God, then we have to stand up and fight the Romans. And if we stand up and if we take take the sword of God into our hands, if we stand up against the Romans, God will come and somehow miraculously deliver us from them and we will be an independent kingdom once again. For the zealots, their creed, their code, pretty simple, death to the Romans, kill the Romans. Other end of the political and religious spectrum, the Sadducees and priests, the powers that be in the city of Jerusalem who worked with the Romans, their creed, Their code was pretty simple as well. Work with the Romans. They believed that God already is king. And so if Rome is in charge, it must be by the will of God. And so in resisting them, you resist God. Work with the Romans. Does anyone remember that Jesus among the 12 disciples had both a tax collector who worked for the Romans and Simon, who's referred to as a zealot? That alone should tell us that Jesus is playing a completely different game. Zealots, deaths to the Romans, Sadducees and priests work with the Romans. The Pharisees had really kind of a different approach. They believed that the key was for everyone to keep the law as they kept it. Some believe that if all Israel for just one day would keep the Sabbath perfectly and holy, the kingdom would come. And then there were the Essenes. We don't read about them in the Bible, but we found some of their literature. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Their creed was really kind of run away, go off into the desert, separate themselves from the unrighteous world around and wait for God to come. Everyone hoped, everyone prayed, everyone believed that a day would come when the kingdom would come and God would begin to reign and set right all the wrongs and heal all the hurts. They had different beliefs about how the kingdom would come and our role in the coming of the kingdom. None of them, no one expected a crucified Messiah. 
None of them. No one expected the Son of Man to be betrayed, beaten, mocked, spat upon, killed. For every first century Jew, the disciples included a crucified Messiah as a contradiction in terms. It's not a Messiah. And so the disciples can't process what Jesus is saying. You know, Lewis and Clark should not have been surprised by the Rocky Mountains when they ran into them. For months, they had caught glimpses of them here and there, now and then, and they had heard stories from the native peoples that there were mountains to the west with tops touching the sky. They had heard stories, they'd caught glimpses, but they could not bring themselves to accept, to believe that the world didn't work the way they expected. They just couldn't believe what their own eyes had already begun to tell them and their ears had already heard until they just couldn't deny it any longer. Jesus himself has been telling the disciples, look, when I go to Jerusalem, something shocking is going to happen. Three times he tells them that he will suffer and die. In Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Luke 9.44, let these words sink into your ears. I love that. He knows that they're having a hard time hearing what he is saying. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. And then in our passage from this morning, he took the twelve aside and said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked and insulted and spat upon, After they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples are confronted with their own kind of Rocky Mountain moment. The world is not the way they expected. The kingdom won't come as they assumed it would come. A crucified Messiah? How could the kingdom possibly come through a crucified Messiah? How could the kingdom possibly come, the true human, establish the kingdom of God, the rule of God? How could the wrongs be set right and the hurts healed through a Messiah who is betrayed and handed over and mocked and beaten and spat upon and executed? The kingdom has come and always comes through the cross because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. And the Romans were not the problem. Those people aren't ever the real problem. We are the problem, each of us and all of us. And the kingdom has come for all of us, not just some of us. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, is a rule of 
love, self-giving, sacrificial, other-oriented, God-glorifying, world-renewing love. Life at its fullest, life at its best, community at its fullest and richest is a communion of self-giving, mutual, other-oriented love. The kingdom has come and only comes through the cross because the kingdom of God is a kingdom of love. But we still struggle to believe that. We still hope that somehow the cross is something that Jesus has gotten over and we can move on to something more interesting and powerful and reassuring. Back in October, Russell Moore, uh, editor of Christianity Today magazine, wrote that a friend had sent him a clip of two Christian political commentators arguing that their cultural opponents were so sinful that they had sunk to the level of the subhuman. This is demonic. Our enemies are demonic, one said. There's no turning the other cheek. There's no being winsome. Think about those words for a moment. There's no turning the other cheek. There's no doing what Jesus did and said we should do. Because those people are demonic. In his book, To Change the World, sociologist James Davidson Hunter writes that when a society is healthy, many spheres of society flourish, art, education, commerce, religion. But when societies begin to fracture, when the values, for good or for ill, that have held them together no longer hold sway, then everything begins to revolve around politics. Everyone begins to think that the real way to produce change is to gain political power, and the reason for that is really pretty simple. The political sphere is the only one that has access to coercive power. There's no turning the other cheek. We can believe that. We can live that way. We can claim to stand for Jesus even as we say that Jesus is naive and not relevant. Or, then everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. After they have flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Or we can believe that the kingdom has come and always and only comes through the cross. I told that story about the Lewis and Clark expedition and the Corps of Discovery's arrival at the headwaters of the Missouri during the State of the Church address because that really is a picture of the moment in which we find ourselves. Like the Corps of Discovery, we find ourselves faced with a world that is vastly different, significantly different than the world behind us and the world we know and in which we were raised. The world before us is post-Christendom. It's a world in which the Christian faith no longer enjoys a, a, a clear cultural hegemony, clear political privilege. It is, in many ways, a more complicated world. 
For many, a bewildering world in which multiple faiths are present in our communities and in our culture at large. It's also, of course, a post-pandemic world, and we're still trying to figure out what that means. What we do know is that whereas in the past we could assume that the vast majority of our neighbors shared some version of the Christian faith, that's no longer the case. And so how do we go forward into that unfamiliar world, which is for many so unsettling? We can reach for political power to try and bring back the past as we remember it. Or we can follow Jesus on the way of the cross. Sometime around 107, 108 A.D., Antioch, uh, or I'm sorry, Ignatius of Antioch, bishop of the church in Antioch, was arrested uh, for his faith in Jesus Christ. This was kind of one of multiple outbreaks of persecution of the early church in the ancient Roman Empire. It was decided very quickly that Ignatius would be transported to Rome and placed on trial, which he was. He was accompanied by 10 Roman soldiers. They were his, uh, they were his guards and they transported him over the course of several months to Rome where he was tried and then executed, thrown to the lions. But in the months during which Ignatius traveled from Antioch in Syria to Rome in Italy, he had occasion to receive visitors from churches throughout the Middle East and also to write letters. There are seven letters from Ignatius of Antioch sent to the churches who had really sent delegations to him, and he kind of talks about the road ahead and also gives counsel to them as churches living in a very aggressively non-Christian world. In his letter to the church in Ephesus, he wrote these words, Keep on praying for others too. For there is a chance of their being converted and getting to God. Let them then learn from you, at least by your actions. Return their bad temper with gentleness. Their boasts with humility. Their abuse with prayer. In the face of their error, be steadfast in the faith. Return their violence with mildness and do not be intent on getting your own back. By our patience, let us show we are their brothers, intent on imitating the Lord, seeing which of us can be more the, the, more, the more wronged, robbed, and despised. Thus no devil's weed will be found among you, but thoroughly pure and self-controlled, you will remain body and soul united to Jesus Christ. This morning, Jesus leads us off the map of our expectations, off the map of our politics, off the map of our game of thrones, to walk with him on the way of the cross. The way, the only real way that leads to life the only real way that leads to joy, the only real way that leads to the fullness of life in the coming kingdom of God, the only real way that leads us through the world as it is with beastly human empires toward the world as it will be under the gracious reign of the truly human one.
Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.